is so fun when you're all so open with your testimonies and praises and just ministers to all of us. So thank you for doing that. And may I just brag about Regina a little, who was just talking about Simba. Regina isn't married and um, doesn't have children, but God has brought tons of children to her. In her apartment complex, Regina shares the love of God to all those little kids that come to her her apartment and live in that parking lot. She is always telling kids about how much God loves them. So you do have children. They're just um, in and out. (laughs) It's good to be back and be with all of you. We're still um, on the mountaintop meeting with our King Jesus along the Sea of Galilee. We're learning what the disciples of Jesus the King must look like. And hopefully we're beginning to realize that the righteousness of Christ is unique. It begins with our emptiness. It ends up with him filling us. We looked at blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we looked at the fact that Jesus said it brings us inner happiness. And last week we looked at the fact that it brings us outer persecution. And today we will look at the fact that the righteousness of Christ is to transform our hearts and our minds. And that's on your outline. The righteousness of Christ will transform our hearts and our minds. And that means there must be a right attitude behind our righteous actions. A right attitude behind our righteous actions. When I was working on this, it made me think a little bit about years ago. Those of you that have been here a long time remember we had meals ministry And you signed up to be a part of the meals ministry, and you got to deliver a meal in your area. They went by area codes, and so, um, I mean, zip codes. And so they would call you up and say, okay, we need you to bring a meal here, whatever. Well, at that time, everybody in the church was really young. So if we were bringing meals to people, we had little kids. And so we'd have our our little kids hanging on our legs. We'd be shaking them off. I'm making dinner for somebody. And our kids would be running around. We'd be yelling at our husbands. We're making dinner for someone. And they'd say, you know, can we have some? No! No, you guys order a pizza or something. I'm I'm making this meal. This is really what it was like. You know, our kids would be crying. We'd run out to the car. They'd be pressing their faces against the kitchen window, their hungry faces. And we thought about it later. I've talked with some of the moms, and we would laugh because we thought we, we did it with all the wrong kind of spirit. It was hard to do. We had these little kids. We had taken all the beauty out of what it was that we were doing. And so we did not have a right attitude behind that right action. Um, this summer, Ted and I got to go to Vermont with Sally and Lewis Harris, um, our music man here. One night we went to see a community theater production of Beauty and the Beast. Let me tell you a few other things we did on that trip. We saw Bye Bye Birdie, Argentinian Tango Dancers, the capital of Vermont, Montreal, Ben and Jerry's, a granite mine, a cheese factory, Dartmouth University, and a dog parade. Did I mention we were with Lewis and Sally? Now, those of you that know Lewis and Sally, they are just full of energy. And actually, it was such a gift because we didn't have to plan anything. Ted and I just laid around and just went where they said to go. It was so fun. But anyway, we saw this Beauty and the Beast, 
And I had forgotten that the beast wasn't always a beast. That at one time he was this handsome prince, but he had this wicked, evil heart, and he was selfish, and he was cold-hearted. And so a witch or a fairy or someone decides, I'm going to make your outside look like what is inside your heart. And so the beast, it was the outer realization of what was really on the inside of this prince. From the very beginning, God's desire for us that he shares in his word is that we will be inwardly beautiful. Psalm 45 says, The king's daughter is all glorious within. He is not as concerned with our beautiful acts as he is with the attitude behind the act. Ours is a faith unlike any other faith. Other faiths are so much focused on performance, and the Christian faith is focused on a holy and a righteous heart. And it happens as we're transformed by the power of God. And God called his people to have this holy attitude from the beginning of time, from the time that he first called them his people. He called them to have this kind of a heart. But we know, and especially from your homework, that the nation of Israel had become sidetracked. They had long forgotten these words from God, or they had neglected them. They had forgotten that obedience to the law involved an inner conformity as well as um, the outer actions, that it involved the whole man, motives and all, not just external obedience. In fact, look at your verse sheet at King David's final words to Solomon. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your fathers and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. And they'd forgotten these wise words in Proverbs. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. The righteousness that God required was, first of all, internal, but the Jewish leaders had inverted the order of things. They were so about self-righteousness that slowly the plan of God got turned around and it was all about the outer man. And we've been talking the last few weeks about how they added rules upon rules. And this was actually volumes upon volumes of requirements and traditions and legalism that they added to the true revelation from God. And here's how that could happen. Many years before, we talked about in the fall that the Jews went into exile. When they did that, most of them lost the use of their Hebrew language. They began to speak and read and understand Aramaic. The Old Testament only has a little bit written in Aramaic. So when the Jews would come to the synagogue or another place of worship and the rabbis begin to read from the Hebrew, it's just going over their head. They don't understand what's being said anymore. So whose mercy were they at? The mercy of the interpretation of the rabbi who was passing along the rules that he had learned from the other rabbis who passed on rules he had learned 
from the other rabbis, and this is what the people heard. When Ezra returned from being exiled in Babylon, it says he read the word, he read the law, Moses and the prophets. And then it says, when you look closely at it, that then they had to go through the crowds and translate what that word was because they weren't able to all process that Hebrew. So even though they translated the law with Ezra, the later rabbis did not translate the law to the people, and so they just continued to make it say what they thought it said. Also, there was no way an average person could get a copy of the scriptures. They couldn't afford it. They were bulky. They also didn't do much writing, so they passed on the word orally. They just recited things. But what they were actually reciting were these oppressive laws that the rabbis had passed on from generation to generation. All of these issues played a part in the Jews shifting their focus from the inner to the outer. In fact, I just grabbed a list of just a few examples of that. Here's some rules. A new lamp can be moved from one place to another on the Sabbath, but not an old one. Hot food can be kept warm by covering with clothes, feathers, or dried flax, but not by covering with damp herbs or straw, which could engender fresh heat and thus be work on the Sabbath. A donkey may go out on the Sabbath day wearing its saddlecloth if this was put on before the Sabbath. But he may not wear a bell, even if it is plugged. That would be work for the donkey. Goats may go out with a protective cloth on their udders if it is to keep them dry, but not if it's intended to collect the milk. And so on. Of course, I didn't know you could put that on a goat anyway, just to keep them dry. Anyway, just a few examples of some of those burdens that the rabbis were putting on the backs of the people. So, sitting by the sea, Jesus is going to challenge the traditions of the Jews. And the most amazing thing that he would tell them is that your regulations, your traditions, are in conflict with the scriptures. This would come as a huge surprise to the Jewish people who thought nobody honors the law more than we do. His plan was for a holy heart and not righteous acts. It would not be Jesus' teaching that would be opposed to the law. It would be their teaching. So he says, I'll give you six illustrations of that. We get to look at three today. We'll look at the next three next week. First, he wants to clarify something, though. Turn to chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaching these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus is sitting on this hillside, 
teaching to his disciples, he was unlike any scribe, any rabbi that these people had ever seen. They were proud. They were self-assured. Jesus was meek. He was gentle. He was compassionate. When the other religious leaders spoke about religious external things, Jesus spoke about the heart. When they preached about rituals, ceremonies, legalism, Jesus preached about the heart. When they set themselves up above the people and demanded their service, Jesus was low before the people and became their servant. Made me picture how later on in the Gospels, remember when the Pharisees threw the woman of adultery at the feet of Christ. And Christ lovingly picks up this same woman. What a difference the disciples on the hillside that day were seeing in this man named Jesus. So those who wanted to be faithful to the law would have one big question in their mind. What in the world does this guy think about the law, the words of Moses and the prophets? And Jesus answers it in what we just read. Don't even think I came to abolish the law because that was about to be their criticism. He disregarded their oral traditions. He interpreted the law according to its spirit, something that was new for these rabbis who were so rigid. He didn't keep their weekly fasts. He didn't keep their rules about clean and unclean. He healed on the Sabbath. He fellowshiped with outcasts and sinners. He spoke as if he was independent of the law. But in reality, he says here, my teachings don't lower scriptural standards at all. I came to fulfill the law. How did he do that? On your outline, he fulfilled it by being its fulfillment. He didn't have to be like the teachers before him who simply taught it. He was the fulfillment. First of all, he fulfilled the moral law. This was the foundation of God's plan. Israel was to represent the holiness of God. And nobody did that but Jesus Christ. And he didn't just model righteousness. Jesus was righteousness. He fulfilled the moral law. Look at Romans 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Secondly, he fulfilled the judicial law. Now, God had these rules, the law, in place with Israel so they would be unique, a nation under Jehovah, the one... true God. So they would be set apart from all the pagan nations around them that served God after God after God, false God, and all the horrible rituals that went along with that. The people of Israel rejected these laws and eventually rejected the Messiah. And so when Christ died on the cross, those judicial laws passed away. Israel would no longer serve as his chosen nation. One day they will be redeemed. But for now, everyone who receives the work of Christ on the cross 
becomes his chosen ones. That means us in this room. Look at 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. These were the laws of the worship that the Jews performed before God. And we've studied this some. It involved the shedding of blood. It involved sacrifices to atone for their sins. And as the perfect sacrifice, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. He brought all sacrifices to an end. He was the blood of the unblemished lamb that once and for all atones for sin. And remember when you looked at John the Baptist, that was his introduction. When Jesus walked up, what an introduction to the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No longer is there need for ceremony. He is the Lamb of God. He fulfilled that part of the law. When Jesus died, the temple veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And this was representing how in the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was, only the high priest could go into God's presence. At the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, that veil was torn in half, signifying through the blood of Christ, we get to enter into the presence of God on our own. He fulfilled that for us. Look at Hebrews 10. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. From Genesis 1 to Malachi 4, 6, the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. We had someone that worked here once that was uh, funny that was helping out in the office, and they came with a misprint because somebody was teaching on Jesus in the Old Testament. <laughs> they came and said, you meant Jesus in the New Testament? Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. And I thought, how exciting to get to tell her he is. From Genesis to Malachi, it was all about him. It was all pointing to him. On your outline, the law pointed to righteousness, but Christ gives us righteousness. It's his own righteousness. Look at Galatians 3. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And then in the passage we read, Jesus said nothing can be changed in the law until it's accomplished. He is accomplishing it. We just looked at that. We are accomplishing it as we share the good news of Christ in the world. And finally, the judgment of the wicked will accomplish the words of the Old Testament. And then Jesus says, certainly, you can't expect it to be accomplished by the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 
we are to have so much more. We are to have an inner purity. In teaching the law accurately, Jesus taught things contrary to their traditions, not contrary to the law. They had emptied the law of its meaning and voided it. In contrast, Jesus gives it true significance and meaning, and he exposes the sin of their self-righteousness. So he goes into his first examples of that. First, murder. We can compare the scribe's righteousness with the king's righteousness when we look at this. So look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, the minute Christ spoke those words on the mountaintop, they knew he must stand opposed to the law. It was a shock to their system. We read this. It's hard for us to get there. It's hard for us to go in their shoes. The law was so holy in their mind that they used to take the scrolls in the synagogue and they would walk around the room. And if the scrolls happened to pass by you, you bowed down or you kissed it. You showed reverence to the law of God. But here, Jesus, without any pomp and circumstance, is speaking about the law and adding a substitute teaching of his own. No one had ever heard anything like that before. He reads, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. When the rabbis taught, they always said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus didn't need to do that. Jesus was the Lord. So he's just making his original comment on the intent of the law. No one would ever dare to claim to overturn what they believed was the eternal word of God. Now, he's not really overturning it, but in their mind, that's what he was doing. When he says at the beginning, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, it it actually translates the ancients. And what he's talking about isn't the law directly. He's talking about those rabbis' teachings that have come down through the ages. So he is contradicting their teaching here. He is not contradicting the words of Moses and the prophets. And just as startling as the way he said these words was that he is putting down their view on murder. The scribal tradition was if you commit murder, then you um, will be subject to judgment. But Jesus goes beyond that, and he traces murder back down into the human heart, into the dark recesses, into the beast of hatred and anger that lives within our hearts. And he is judging that. On your outline, the inner beast behind murder is hatred. And Jesus is saying, God who sees in secret is not just offended by the fruit of murder, he's offended by the root of hatred and anger. It may not be accountable in your law, hatred, but it has no business being in a disciple of Jesus Christ. They will have to face the judgment of a holy God 
people who dwell that way. Even if on the outside they're thinking, I've done no wrong because I've never murdered anybody. 1 John 3 tells us, We know we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now, the scribes also had something to say about getting insulted. They tried to protect people from that. If you were called Raka, there's no real interpretation that fits today, but it means something like blockhead. If you were called a blockhead or empty-headed, you could tell on whoever called you this name, and you would be brought before the Sanhedrin Jewish Council, the village council, to be punished for doing that. In the verses that we read, Jesus is saying, even the attitude that comes behind calling someone a blockhead is worthy of the judgment of God. What a new thought for them. So he's saying to them, don't be smug because you've never murdered anyone because in your heart you have. What can we do about it? Look at verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. When a true disciple of Jesus approaches God, he has to understand acceptable worship means repairing relationships. And I loved the testimony about that today. And if you'll notice in these verses, these are offenses people have against you, not even offenses you have against someone else. We are to be checking that in our heart when we want to have acceptable worship to God. What relationships are in my life that I need to repair? And if you'll notice, we're supposed to do it quickly. Verse 25 is probably an image of um, you're on your way to judgment. Do it while you are with him on the way. Where are you going? It's sort of a picture of final judgment before God. Get these things taken care of right away. Isaiah 1 says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, God said, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Let's look at his next illustration, which is adultery, verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, the scribes would say adultery is wrong. Jesus would say the attitude behind adultery is wrong. On your outline, the beast behind adultery is lust. And Jesus wants them to look at that. When it says the word look here, you might circle that. It means the continuous process of looking. And I'm glad for that because don't you feel sorry if you have a son or a husband? These billboards and these commercials that just lamb blast them all throughout the day. Um, 
That doesn't mean they're sinners when they catch glimpses of those things. This means intentional, repeated gazing, not an involuntary glance. And it means you're looking with the purpose of lusting. It is not lustful looking that's causing the sin in your heart. It's the sin in your heart that is causing the lustful looking. And we think we can just read over these verses and just go on. There is, though, a part that we play in other man's lust. In fact, one man wrote this. If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted over are not less but perhaps more guilty. We can really help out our Christian brothers by wearing and saying and doing the right things around them. What do we do? Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into your hell, into hell. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, go and cut our body parts off. He is saying, take this seriously. Be radical. Be dramatic. I loved it. Job had a plan. It's, it's fun to look back and see some of the great things about Job. And he said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And then he says, doesn't God see my ways and count my every step? I have a plan. I made a covenant. We have to have a plan. First Corinthians tells us this, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Someone said this, If we don't consciously and purposefully control what is around us, where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we read, the company we keep, and the conversations we have, if we're not in control of those things, then they will be in control of us. Jesus says, what you can't control, you need to discard. You need to discard it without hesitation. And it may mean something different to me than what it does to you, but we can know what God would call us to do. His last illustration is divorce. Let's look at verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But Jesus said, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, back then, divorce was just as common as it is today, maybe even more common. It was easier. You could actually just orally speak divorce and be legally divorced. Sometimes they needed a written notification, but sometimes they didn't. One poet in the first century described women in his poem as being divorced ten times. That's how easy it was. And the rabbis were casually teaching, just give your wife a certificate of divorce, and there is no sin. Permissibility on any ground. 
even in the Jewish community. Now, here's how they did this. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses had written about something about adultery, and they had twisted those words. They wanted to interpret them to be a command for divorce, when in reality, it was a verse to protect these women who kept being casually divorced from one man, from another man, and from another man. Jesus, to teach on the marriage bond, he taught extremely high value on it. He was very opposed to this frivolous attitude. He gives only one reason for divorce here and in Matthew 19, marital unfaithfulness. And I have to tell you, there's been books written about what exactly marital unfaithfulness is. You can imagine because man wants to try to get it to fit into everything that might help them out. So I'm not going to go there, but here's what I am going to say. What's Jesus' point? His point is marriage is to be permanent. He wants it to be what God had planned for it to be in the first place. In Matthew 19, when the Pharisees wanted to test Jesus, they said, why did Moses allow for divorce? Jesus' answer was, because their hearts were hard. And I think the beast behind divorce on your outline is a hardened heart. God says in the book of Malachi, when a man puts his wife away, God said, it's like he's wearing a garment of violence. What an image for us to remember. God's best, God's ideal, God's plan is for married people to stay married. Look at Matthew 19. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has put together, let no man separate. For those of us who are married, we've got to take these words seriously. For those of us who have been divorced, we have to let it be taught. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love people that are divorced. He does. He forgives them. He uses them. They're active in the kingdom of God, and we are grateful for that. But we still exhort each other, as we do in all these other things, to follow God's best plan. We don't become frivolous like the rabbis did, ignoring what God has called us to. Remember that we are to be the salt. We are to be the light in the world. I was reading in a a Sunday newspaper a few weeks ago, maybe some of you saw this about Will Smith, and I normally wouldn't want to use him as a spiritual advisor, even though he seems like a nice guy, but I don't know if he knows the Lord. But it was the best interview because in this newspaper interview, the guy that was interviewing Will Smith kept trying to get around to, must be really hard on your marriage to Jada, must be, you must have a hard time. And Will was bothering the interviewer because he kept saying things like, well, we're just committed. Well, we just made a vow. And he finally said, you know, it's not that that easy to stay married. And he said, you know, and Will said, well, divorce is not an option. And the guy got Will right there, and he said, but you have been married before. And Will's quick answer was, and it was a huge mistake. He said, I could have worked a lot harder at it. And now I realize that. And so with my wife Jada, I realize the vows I made are to God 
and divorce is not an option. So when you guys think about it, pray that Will keeps his commitment up. <laughs> I just appreciated what he had to say to someone who was really down on what he was saying. What are we to do? We take our vows seriously. We work on our marriages. And we go to God to soften our hearts. That's the hardest thing to do in marriage. So how can we do these things? Jesus has laid this really incredible standard before his disciples to say to them, you know, it's not just the external. You've got to look at the beast inside. You look in the heart. And we think, okay, do I just determine in my mind, good heart, be a good heart. The great news is it's God's job to change our hearts. And he loves to do it. But we have to do two things to get to that place. Number one, let God break your heart. We have to face the beasts. There could be a beast of self-righteousness where you perform for God. You do little things that make you feel good about your relationship with God. They make you feel good about yourself. They're your own little traditions. They come under your own authority. It's easy to go there. It's easy to live that way and not even realize it until you say, God, break my heart and show me those things. I was listening to a Christian radio station. It's been years ago. And it's this great Christian radio station. They had these women talking and this man. And this one woman was a DJ. She was also a counselor. And so they were talking about the importance of quiet times. And she said, I have my quiet time early in the morning so I can get it out of the way. And they were like, what a great idea. And and I started laughing in the car because I thought she doesn't have a clue what she just said. She was feeling good about herself. She made a little rule and she was keeping it. Now, it is a good rule. Not if your motive's not right. Her motive was not right. That's just one example. We do those kind of things in our heart, and we don't really know it. Look at Colossians 2. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle this. Do not taste. Do not touch. These are all destined to perish with us because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I liked that verse. There's another beast that keeps our hearts from being beautiful, and this is the beast of neglect. This is something else that we have to let God break our heart about. This is those inner sins that we have hidden deep. We don't want God to see them. We don't want anybody else to see them. And so we continue to do good things on the outside, but we're afraid to let God go there because it's really part of who I am. And we think we're hiding those sins from God. Instead, we have to bravely, it's scary, we bravely listen to what God has to say to us We agree with God, and then we grieve with God. 
the great thing is we get then to take the next step. Number two, let God take your heart. We have let God break our heart. We let God take our heart. He is crazy about you. When you give him your heart, it will never be the same. We don't have to clean it up first. Those sinful attitudes, the envy, the anger, the bitterness that you keep trying to stop on your own, that I keep trying to stop on my own, he says, take me those. Take me those. Like that woman who was called the sinful woman in the Gospels that comes to Christ at the Pharisee's house. And she lays down. First she stands behind him, Jesus, weeping. Then she gets down at his feet. She continues to weep. She pours perfume. She takes her hair. She's wiping his feet. And she's giving her heart to Jesus. Every last sinful, horrible thing she was a part of. And Christ was lavishing his love on her. Across the room is the Pharisee. In his mind, he had done everything right. He had the teacher over. He was trying to keep in good with him. Served him a meal. And I'm not having anything to do with that unclean woman at your feet. Who got a renewed heart? The woman at the feet of Christ. God is in the business of transforming hearts. It is the work of the Spirit. Look at Galatians 5. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. There is nothing more freeing than to know God is bringing me his righteousness from inside out. There is a great song we like to sing, Change My Heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. This should be our daily prayer, the daily song we sing. And we will be amazed at what happens inside of us when we allow Christ's righteousness to live within us. Let me pray. We love you, Father, that you love us just like we are. We love it that you will transform us, that we may represent you. And I ask we would be encouraged today. We would walk lightly knowing how you love us so much. We thank you and give you praise for this time. In Christ's name, amen.